then when you're out there on the stage and you're communicating with the audience and there is no barrier, it's a conversation that you're having with the conductor, the, the orchestra, the, the audience. And in that moment, something happens. Being able to let go and have almost a freewheeling experience, well, it's magic. Do you believe in love at first sight? My guest today experienced just that. Min Kim is a violinist and author of critically acclaimed memoir Gone. She met her first violin at the tender age of six and there began the beginning of a lifelong love story. She met a few violins before she was introduced to the love of her life, her Stradivarius. Min and her new love traveled the world together performing to thousands in some of the most spectacular theaters until her violin was suddenly stolen from her. Min wrote her memoir about her experience of love and grief and the new joys and balance she found on this unplanned journey. Hello, Min, and welcome to the B-Side podcast. I'm so delighted you could take the time to chat with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've been listening to your podcasts and I think they are so wonderfully inspiring. So I'm just absolutely thrilled to be here. Oh, well, I've got great guests, so it's all about the guests. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, Min, your neighbourhood actually had a lot of people who played music. And at the age of six, probably to keep you off the streets, your mother turned around and said, do you want to play the violin? And you said, I absolutely want to play the violin. You had a connection from the beginning with mu- whether it was music or the violin. And, and why do you, th- do you think that's related to identity or why do you think that connection was there from the beginning? Well, as as you say, um, I think I think a lot of the sort of recogni- uh, recognition of music being this international language um, stemmed from learning two languages at the same time. Um, roughly, when you know, when 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 we are actually learning how to uh, speak one language, um, and I just found it such a relief <laughs> that there was this uh, this musical language that everybody understood and I didn't need to translate. So, so, so for example, because my parents, um, when they came over to England, my father was actually working for a Korean company that was based in the UK. It was a brand new company. Their head, headquarters were in South Harrow. And uh, my mother was learning to speak English at the same time as her children, aged three and five. So there was a lot of, um, I think there was just a little bit of a mismatch in the way that we developed uh, because children obviously do pick up languages a lot quicker and easier. We sort of absorb them like sponges. Um, and so we were sort of heads and shoulders above our, our mother in, in actually uh, learning the language. And so we would have to sort of translate for her in shops and things, which is, you know, it's quite an unusual situation. And mm-hmm. I did, I, I, it, I think it probably did. Um, I was a very shy child. I didn't like to be uh, pushed forward in any way. And so I think um, I didn't really like that role of having to be the conduit between the outside world and my mother at the age of three. And so learning to play the violin, for some reason, all of that just, it just dissolved. Uh, when I was, so, so, so as, as you say, I started playing the violin at six and a half, um, but I, I sort of didn't mind performing or playing in front of people. It was just mm. the most peculiar thing. Whereas, whereas I found it so difficult being um, you know, just sort of making small talk, even at that age, um, and just having to um, make polite conversation and things. I, I, I just didn't. It, it didn't feel, didn't feel like my most uh, comfortable environment. But somehow, music just made everything okay. Everything felt normal. 
with music and, and violence. And that is probably why the relationship was so intense from the beginning. Well, you know, I always think, I always, I, I sometimes wonder, well, if it hadn't been the violin, would it have been something else? Because but your you sister know, is a classical pianist, right? She's so, a pianist, yes, she's a wonderful yeah. pianist, yes. And uh, she really took to the piano straight away. Uh, my mother, actually, one of the very first things she did, uh, so my, 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 fa- my, my father and my mother had a very sort of traditional uh, setup. He would go out to work, my mother would look after the house and the children, he would give her his wages, you know, at the end of the week, and she would budget. But she would always put aside a little bit of money. Where, and the very first thing she bought was a hi-fi system. And uh, she joined this music club where they would play records like Sibelius symphonies. And I look back now and I recognise how unusual that was, you know, um, for, for, for somebody like my mum who didn't really have that much um, exposure or connection to classical music, but somehow she developed this uh, real love of it. And the second thing she bought was a piano, uh, a little upright honky-tonk thing. It was dreadful. <laughs> and so we would, you know, practice our instruments. And of course, it did feel... It felt like playing with toys at that when we were that age. It was um, interesting. It's very engaging. It's very absorbing. Learning a, learning a musical instrument is a very absorbing thing if that is where your interests lie. I suppose um, if you're very sporty, then you know um, being sporty will take up your um, energies and your um, concentration. And I think for some reason, and I can't quite figure out why yet because it's not like we had music in the family uh, somehow my sister and I did gravitate towards towards music and at the age of 12 you went on to win prizes and started uh, performing around the world at the very young age of 12 and had a manager I believe at 12 is that right did you yes yeah, so I so I won a competition in Italy uh, that was televised around the world and it was a competition essentially for child prodigies. And, you know, it's only in later life <laughs> that I can actually use the word child prodigy without cringing. You know, when I, when I was a child um, and people would use the word child prodigy, I would just want the, world to, the, the floor to swallow me up. It was just, you know, nobody wants to be different when you're 11 years old, you know. And so I, um, I, I mean, I was fortunate enough that I was in an environment um, I, I went to a specialist music school, so the, the common ground for every pupil was um, uh, playing a musical instrument, and music was at the centre, I suppose, of our curriculum. I mean, it was an academic school, but we start, for example, we started the day every morning, we would um, sing in a choir, and we would have uh, you know, a compulsory one hour, 20 minute music lesson every day. So that was, you know, as you say, it was, I think, yes, I think there is a lot of uh, uh, safety in in that sort of discipline and mm. the uh you know the constancy of of music which is just the mo- i mean for me it is the most nourishing it's it's as important as food and water really to you know go beyond just surviving yeah to be to, to be creating something for you music is as important as bread and water that's that's what you're saying yeah, I, I sort of feel yes. I mean, I did go playing. through a period um, when after my after the theft of my violin, where mm. 
you know, I, I now recognise that I did have some sort of breakdown. I didn't mm. at the time, you know, I think I was in denial for such a long time um, that it didn't even really register. And I, I've always been the kind of person that sort of, you know, believes in you soldier on. You saw, you know, the, the stiff up, upper lip has been a, a big mantra in my life. And also coming from that um, Eastern way of dealing with, uh, you know, keeping face. Um, I, it was a very, very difficult. I mean, I didn't cry, for example, for, uh, for for months. And when I finally did cry, my whole body was shaking. Mm. And I, but no tears were coming out because it was almost like there was this block. Um, and eventually, the tears started to flow, and then became the heat. You know, began the healing process. But um, mm. just that sort of tightening, tightening, tightening of that coil that needed a release was so, let, um, so yeah, letting was tremendously go yeah difficult yeah being able to let go and one of the things i i found the influence of mentors and managers throughout your life in really good and really really good and maybe some damaging ways as well and I wonder, I mean, there were some people that really nourished your soul and you seemed to flourish with. And then others that, that, that maybe had too much of a tight grip over you. What circumstances did you flourish within? You're absolutely right. There is a duality with that sort of mentorship. And... Um, it is a very intense relationship because it's a one-to-one. And I think with that sort of one-to-one, there's always going to be an inequality in the relationship and it can easily tip into an unbalance. And I think I did experience the tipping into um, something maybe less than healthy. I don't mean in in a nasty way or anything like that, but just in the very nature of when you are... 12 years old <laughs> and um, there's a lot of promise and, and potential that your teacher sees in you and they invest a lot of their own life, time, energies um, and also their, their own career really, you know, there's a lot at stake and I think also, um, you know, I do recognise that because my father actually at this point was living in Libya, he was working in Libya, we were living in, in, in England and there was a void that I think I was um, vulnerable to seeking this father figure, these father figures. Mm. Um, mm. As I say, you know, it, it, when I say it tipped into perhaps unhealthy territory, I would say that it's perhaps not surprising uh, in, 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 in the sense of that, uh, you know, music is very very intimate it's a very intimate thing and by the way I, I I must say that nothing untoward ever happened it seemed to me that some of the mentors were good for a period and like anything maybe you outgrew them or Mm-mm-mm. now you just needed a different style and yes, then I some right, really yeah. allowed you be yourself I, when I look back the, the 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 teachers that I I think of with the greatest fondness are those who recognize the time it was to let the student go and to let the student fly and um, thus enabling actually a, a, a further relationship it's a little bit like our parents isn't it it's the relationship we have with our parents is that there comes that day when you when the parent recognizes that the child is an adult and the relationship shifts 
that's not to say that they'll they will always be your parent and you will always be their child but there becomes more of a sort of adult respect hopefully I mean you know it took me mm. a really long time actually to to get there not even because of my parents but because of the the cons- you know constraints that I placed upon myself actually uh, mm. this idea of um, obedience discipline as you say that had been drummed in so 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 deeply and you know actually accessing the rebel inside me who knew that I had my own instincts um, and to really dig deep and listen to them and not be afraid to listen to my instincts rather than just default to somebody else knowing better and you know as a child it's easier to do that because you're a child but when you are out in the big wide world and you only really have yourself to fall back on and only yourself to really um, take responsibility for for things that um, might go wrong or to learn from mistakes that you make but to actually make those mistakes I mean that was probably something I I, I learned far too late (laughs) I I must admit but uh, you know it's it's, it's still a work in progress. Life is a work in progress. I've listened to some of your music uh, just because I was preparing for today and I I, the, I think it was the Brahms uh, Concerto and it's played with such passion and I know from knowing you the amount of discipline it has ta- it took. I, I mean, a childhood robbed really to, to, get, to do what you did. But then you listen to the music and it is so beautiful and played with such passion and you can't but feel as you listen to it. And I just thought, isn't that really interesting that that brilliance comes from a place of such discipline? It's just not two things you join up, like sort of discipline and then this passion and flow. Um, and letting go. I think the biggest letting, lesson yeah. that I learned was actually once you have, as you say, the discipline, and it's very necessarily obvious because you have to play the right notes in the right order. I mean, that's sort of the, you know, the basis of, of, of playing a piece. But you know beyond that beyond that the uh, you, you know that that the gap between preparation and uh, performance is actually the spontaneity of the moment and actually being able to have uh, the freedom and i think the discipline actually um, gave me the freedom uh, to be able to express myself because here here are, here are these very strong boundaries these very strong walls that were built um, behind closed doors, uh, the hours of preparation. But then when you're out there on the stage and you're communicating with the audience and there is no barrier, it's a conversation that you're having with the conductor, the, the orchestra, the, the audience as well. Um, and in that moment, something happens. Um, and, y- you know, being able to let go and have a sort of almost a freewheeling experience is um it, well it's magic when it happens it doesn't always happen i mean sometimes that you know you can give a very competent performance that doesn't really set flight you went on then uh, you 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 bought your stradifarius which um really was a very intense love affair a hugely a wonderful violin and um you had just bought out a new album, I think. Uh, you were with your boyfriend in Pret-a-Manger and in one moment, your life changes. You turn around and that Stradivarius is gone. And with that was gone the old Min Kim. The theft of my violin was an absolute defining moment in my life 
there was, as you say, um, me pre-theft and post-theft life. Uh, I was I was certainly in shock for quite a long time afterwards. Um, I I suppose not quite accepting that life had changed forever, and I, I and I was sort of desperately clinging on to the idea and the hope that one day things could get back to normal. Um, mm. And of course, it was futile because things do change. Life does change, and the the you know the the biggest hurdle was accepting that life had changed and once I once I accepted that then I started my spirit started to slowly lift I cried a lot you know I, I grieved for my old life I grieved for my for the, for the loss of my violin um and you know I, I sort of had my own lockdown in the months after my violin was stolen I, I was very isolated I was in a very difficult relationship as well at the time and I didn't have the support network that I had always had previously and that I've rebuilt now. I felt terribly isolated. I was living um, in a, it, it, I was actually living in Manchester at the time. And uh, my life had always been in London. And I found, I suddenly found myself in, you know, a place that I didn't have any real roots or connections. And this was in part to do with this relationship um because and again this is all this is all things that I, I I can see very clearly now because I'm able to have the benefit of hindsight but even though this relationship was so very difficult and in many ways traumatic the the fact was that here was someone else who had lived that experience with me he was there at the time of the theft he had experienced the moment that changed my life. And I think I, I clung onto so, some sort of normality that I could um, relate to how things were before. Mm. And um, yeah, so, so, so moving forward from, from that and, and actually finding a new way of being, a new life, uh, new people, um, was it was very yeah it was a big challenge but once I once I embraced it once I actually thought no change is wonderful change is a real opportunity and I started to be excited by the change and actually excited by the uncertainty and not be terrified of the uncertainty anymore but actually welcome it and think of it as um you know this is the next this is this is the next big adventure and I think I, you know, I'm definitely still in that place right now because everything, things are changing so dramatically, especially with, um, with, with you know, this, this dreadful pandemic, because it has completely changed the lives of, you know, so, so, so many people. And as a musician, you know, we don't know when uh, concert halls and uh, venues are going to open again. We don't, we simply right now don't know what the future holds for yeah. the performing arts but so you're we have okay to find with that. another way yeah. well I, the way i the way i look at it really is that music is so strong music is so powerful that it's got to find a way it's got to find a way out 
to yes. communicate. It, yeah. There, there is no alternative. Like at all. Like everybody will find our way of doing things a little bit differently. But just not, I think what you're saying is like not to be, you, letting go was just the best thing that happened to you. And after, after the violin was stolen, did you change the way you played music? So I had been essentially um, a soloist, uh, that is to play concertos as a soloist with an orchestra or recitals um, so, so um, as a violinist with um, a pianist. And although I'd always loved chamber music, it wasn't something that I did um, for the, you know, for the, the large part of uh, my time. Um, and so I went from being on the platform as a soloist to being given the opportunity actually to join a quartet because the first violinist of the quartet had recently left and it was such a last minute decision uh, for, for, for this violinist to leave and for me to replace um, um, her, her position in the quartet that actually we would go to these venues, we would perform at these venues and her name would still be on the programme and to me, at that time where I was, just wanting to, you know, go to ground, but still, you know, I, I couldn't stay away from music, but I did find it just so difficult even really to leave my own front door that the idea of going undercover, so to speak, was just the most incredible blessing. I It was just so wonderful. It was, it was yeah. very, very liberating, mm. yes, yeah. Is there any any performance or talk or anything that, that is particularly touched you yes well of course we we met actually Francis you and I met through the wonderful Susan Kane oh wrote yeah I love Susan Quiet. yeah so her book changed my life <laughs> and I do you know I don't say that lightly because in a way it was such a revelation to um y- you know to to to, to read this book where she's she's really sort of saying you know there is there is such a value in being connected to your extrovert self i might just take a moment at this stage so we're we're, we're talking about susan kane who wrote the power of the introverts and i know so many people who've said susan changed their lives where they understood people around them more but more to the point they understood themselves a little bit better so just for to give everyone a bit of context, I'm going to just pay a little bit of her TED talk. And I want to be clear about what I'm saying because I, I deeply believe our offices should be encouraging uh, casual, chatty, cafe-style types of interactions. You know, the kind where people come together and serendipitously have an exchange of ideas. That is great. That's great for introverts and it's great for extroverts. But we need much more privacy, much more freedom, much more autonomy at work. School, same thing. We need to be teaching kids to work together for sure but we also need to be teaching them how to work on their own. This is especially important for extroverted children too. They need to work on their own because that is where deep thought comes from, in part. Okay, number two, go to the wilderness. Be like Buddha, have your own revelations. I'm not saying that we all have to now go off and build our own cabins in the woods and never talk to each other again. But I am saying that we could all stand to unplug and get inside our own heads a little more often. Number three, take a good look at what's inside your own suitcase and why you put it there. So extroverts, maybe your suitcases are also full of books, or maybe they're full of champagne glasses or skydiving equipment. 
Whatever it is, I hope you take these things out every chance you get and grace us with your energy and your joy. But introverts, you being you, you probably have the impulse to guard very carefully what's inside your own suitcase, and that's okay. But occasionally, just occasionally, I hope you will open up your suitcases for other people to see, because the world needs you, and it needs the things you carry. So I wish you the best of all possible journeys and the courage to speak softly. Thank you very much. It's not just wonderful. I never tire of hearing that. It's so good, that isn't so it? Much, yeah. And I really think it's, um, you know, you were talking about going on stage with somebody else's identity that really sort of you really, really enjoy. But you obviously, you, well, you recognize an internet, introvert in, your, in yourself, I presume, is it, when you read Susan's book? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I mean, in her book, she talks about um, how you can be shy and introverted, but actually, you know, it's important not to conflate the two, that, you know, that they are very, two very different things. I mean, I was both shy and introverted as a child, um, but I sort of had this duality, almost, um, this dual, dual, I wouldn't even say nature, but just a duality where in, in sort of everyday life, I felt very inhibited and shy. And introverted but on stage that was almost where my true self um, which was both introverted and extroverted came out and I think uh, the freedom that um, you know perf performing music um, gives you because you're essentially making music with the people you share the stage with and there's, there is a chemistry that happens that is unique to every performance. And especially as um, a, a soloist in um, the situation where you're playing concerto with the conductor and um, the, the, the orchestra, as we talked about a little bit before, the dynamics between that three-way relationship can change on a, on, you know, on a stroke of a bow, uh, turn of a page. You can alter that dynamic just simply by recognizing the relationship that you have with each of the the, the players i mean the, the orchestra the, themselves they make up this big body um of this sort of sea of emotion really that you you are entering into and engulfed by um and it is you know it's it can be quite an overwhelming experience when you are one voice with 70 others you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but but at the same time, you are actually working as one. It's a little bit like, I suppose, any kind of um, group situation, team situation. That, that sort of, that, that fine line between having your own role, having your own part to play, but actually also being part of a much bigger picture and actually being part, you know, a, a, a one cog in a big uh, wheel. But the important thing is to know what your cog does, why it matters. Yes, that's right, yes. And I think that's yeah. no matter what group you're you're in, whether it's a team at work or on an orchestra or even maybe even amongst the friendship group, to know what you bring to that party and why it's important. Yeah, I mean, I had quite an interesting experience um, again after after the theft of my violin when I was just sort of uh, wondering what I'm going to do with I, I, you know I I even went through a period of thinking, well, is my life as a violinist over? I can't even bear to listen to music anymore because it's so painful. Should I just retrain for something else? 
but then when I did come back, when I realised actually, you know, m- you know, music is a vocation and, and, and this, is, this is my life, um, I actually did play in an orchestra and I played um, um, in the back of the, of the seconds. I didn't want to, I, you know, I, I sort of didn't even want to be, um, as I say, I just wanted to be protected by this sort of anonymity. Um, and I fell into the, I fell into the trap the mistaken um, thinking that because I'm at the back of the seconds, it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, if I just go along, if I just go with the flow and I just, you know, make the right sounds and, you know, I'm just making up the volume and, oh, how wrong could I be? That's <laughs> because, very interesting. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It really, really mattered because people were li- are listening. They're listening to each other. They're listening to you sitting in the back of the seconds or they're listening to the leader who's sitting right at the front of the orchestra. And everybody's listening to each other. The, the, whole, the whole performance depends on mm. us listening to each other. Uh, so, yes, I, I learned that. <laughs> I learned and that I think that I... I I think that's something that Susan really brings out in her, the way she forms her talk or, or her thinking around um, the type of people we are, that there is room for extroverts, but there is equally and just as importantly room for introverts and listeners. And as she says, we need them. We need both. But um, men, unfortunately, we've run out of time and there is so much more we I would love to cover with you. I would love someday to bring you back to talk about the whole creative process, working with music and the composing part, the ebbs and flows that you go through with that. But also as being part of that team, I just think it's very, very interesting, the the makeup of an orchestra and the dynamics around that. So maybe we'll coax you back to talk to us again another day, Min. Would I'd you, love to. Thank yeah, you so much. That'd be great. And in the meantime, thank you very, very much for giving me your time today. And thank you for listening. We will share the details of Min and that full talk from Susan Kane on our show notes. If you liked what you heard today, please do subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next week for my conversation with one of the world's leading immunologists, Dr. Luke O'Neill. Thank you. 